Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. It is April 2nd, 2018. I'm Charlie Sykes, uh, joined by Jim Swift and Chris Deaton of the Weekly Standard. Thanks for joining me. I appreciate it very much. You guys have a great Easter? Yeah, very good. Out of town, actually. I, being up here in D.C. away from family is a little unusual for me, but, you know, in the company of good people. I just have to mention this. Uh, April 2nd has always been a big date in my family. Uh, 50 years ago today, uh, I like to think that my father and I helped oust a sitting president of the United States. This, this was 50 years ago today, April 2nd, 1968, was the Democratic primary in Wisconsin, presidential primary, and Eugene McCarthy uh, defeated Lyndon Johnson. And of course, the footnote to that is that Lyndon Johnson knew he was going to lose in Wisconsin and dropped out of the race a few days earlier. But again, I take credit for that. My, my, <laughs> my, my dad, I was a punk kid, of course. So, but my father and I, this is, this is what spoiled me for life. My father was the campaign manager for Eugene McCarthy in Wisconsin. And I'm a punk kid. And we opened up the first McCarthy for president office in late 1967. It was just us. You know, got, things got out of hand after that. <laughs> um, and, but I actually imagine this is how why I became as obnoxious as I am. I'm, I'm in eighth grade. I'm flying around in the plane with a national press corps and a candidate for president who's about to win the primary. And, I, you know, I, I actually went to the Democratic National Convention in Chicago, even got tear gassed. But oh. April 2nd, 1968, big anniversary in the family. Wow. The moment that history changed. Yeah, well, you know, I had to bring that up because nobody else was going to, I guess. <laughs> right, let's talk about that. Let's talk about this weekend. The president of the United States chose to mark Easter Sunday by tweeting out that uh, the DACA deal is dead and he blames the Democrats. Your 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 thoughts, first of all, about the timing of that and also the way the president characterized how DACA works, which just suggests that he's not actually clear on the details. Chris Deaton. Well, oh, my gosh, not clear on the details. Holy cow. Um, th this is somebody I think I try not to pay attention and quote tweet too many people on Twitter. Uh, but I think this was one of those circumstances in which I scratched my head and said, actually, I think this guy might have a point. But I can't remember who the reporter was for. Mm -hmm. But. The comment was something along the lines of, has actually anybody pulled over the president and asked him at any point how DACA actually works? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Because I think when we hear about the president saying that this deal is alive, this deal is dead, this deal is revived, this person's getting in the way, the Democrats are at fault, I will run over the Republicans if I have to. Uh, this is the haphazard way that I think a lot of his deal-making um, in a governmental sense works that hasn't exactly translated from uh, from his business career being able to make the big, most beautiful deal. So, you, you know, that part of it kind of struck me the most just because I don't know, I, I don't know what kind of credibility to lend to the idea that any deal is alive or dead. What deal? What are the details of this deal? Are we talking about, you know, we, we have gone back and forth constantly about, you know, Schumer at some point being willing to give in on the wall and the president gives a certain extent on DACA. What are the parameters of, you know, each side being willing to give in? All of this stuff is so fluid. I just don't even know in the moment with things changing every 15 minutes what the significance of this type of stuff is. Yeah, I, maybe the significance is is that the guys he's hanging around with, apparently he mm -hmm. spent the weekend with Sean Hannity and he's listening to Lou Dobbs. What could possibly go <laughs> wrong? I really, you know, it, it is remarkable. 
um, you know, you're the president of the United States and you have access to all of this information, you know, the, the best and the brightest folks. And, you know, he's he's having he's having dinner with what Seb Gorka. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know whether he's getting his, you know, his talking points from Sheriff David Clark. No, one of the things that, that struck me was that in, in the tweet storm, he's talking about these big flows of people who are coming into the country because, because they want to take yeah. advantage of DACA. But in order to be eligible for the program, right. you had to have lived in the country since 2007. You had to arrive in the country before you turned 16 and have been younger than 31 on June 15th, 2012. If you came in after that, you don't qualify. So, no. Well, you know, here's here's how they're going to spin this in the, the White House uh, briefing room today. This is uh, Jim Swift's crystal ball. Mm. And that's not where I do my Bill Crystal impression. But right. uh, they're going to spin this as, well, you know, it was clear that the president just meant that any time you provide amnesty for anyone, it is a magnet for future amnesties. Mm-hmm. That is a common talking point uh, on the right. And I guess there's some some truth to it. But the fact of the matter is that the real magnet is our economy and right, our country. Exactly. People are always going to come illegally because it's the United States of America. It's it's like trying to you're always going to have people who want to sneak into games that are hard to get into because it's the World Series or, right. or whatnot. Like they're, they're not doing it because, oh, you know, that one guy got off. But maybe some people do, but they, they come for jobs and they come for the economy. And as long as our economy is good, people are always going to keep coming. And, and just real quick, Jim, I actually think it might be worth pointing some people in the direction of uh, Grant Wishard, who is out uh, down on the U.S.-Mexico border right now, biking the border and talking to uh, some people who have actually come across the border for economic reasons, and some of the people that he has just kind of interviewed incidentally along the way, you get that with anecdotal first-person accounts constantly. I mean, there are, there is so much cultural attachment that a lot of people who do come across the border to work here still have to their families back home, and we can talk about remittances and all that type and all that type of stuff. But you know, when it comes to coming across the border and pursuing this concept of the American dream or whatever, it is very much based in economic opportunity. So if you are not part of a country that is, you know, growing and has a growing middle class and being able to, um, you know, take part in that upward mobility, um, you know, lack of opportunities, uh, you know, they, they don't exactly abound, of course you're going to come to the United States. Economics are what the magnet is, so it makes perfect sense. That's an important point. Uh, going back to the politics of all of this, though, uh, I, I can't help but notice that uh, Ann Coulter is out there trolling the president both on Twitter. Ann Coulter actually gives an interview to Frank Bruni of The New York Times talking about uh, you know, the, the, her sense of betrayal by the president. Uh, this is the woman who wrote, of course, you know, in, in Trump We Trust, now finding out that, hey, amazing, the guy's a con man. But you know, having been totally rolled on the funding for the wall, it, it does seem as if the president has decided he's going to double down in throwing some red meat to his base. OK, I'm not getting the wall, but let's keep ginning this up. So is is there a little bit of a colder effect here? Um, there's this meme at concerts that play Freebird. Trump <laughs> is the guy who shouts play Freebird, but he's the lead guitarist on stage. You don't need to shout play Freebird when you're the lead guitarist. You just play Freebird. And so I think that that's, that's what these tweet storms are. They're red meat distractions. Mm-hmm. And he's the lead guitarist shouting play Freebird on stage. You should just drop the bike now, Jim. We just, 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 just you know, call, call it a day. All right, I want to move on to a couple of other things, um, including, including this this weird liberal freakout 
about Kevin Williamson. Now, for folks who aren't familiar, we you know we we live in our own little bubble, so we know all about you know Kevin Williamson. Kevin Williamson is a right was a writer for National Review Magazine, who has just been picked up by the Atlantic, and and he's he's been known for I, I think he's a brilliant writer, but he's also edgy. He's controversial. Uh, he certainly pushes the envelope, and for some reason. Uh, the journalistic or some folks on the journalistic left have decided that th- this is the moment for them uh, to go into high dudgeon about, you know, wh- why is the Atlantic hiring someone you know, as extreme as Kevin Williamson? What, what, what is, what's going on here? What is your sense, Jim? Uh, I think that a lot of the uh, I tweeted this and it was a subtweet not directed at anyone in particular who's a writer on the left. But a lot of it's jealousy, I think from people on the left like why can't i work at the atlantic oh but uh, i think also it's there's there's a mindset amongst far left uh, intelligentsia and think tank types and and writers and uh, like media matters you know I, I don't know what we would call them they're not journalists i mean they're activists active active journalists i don't know but they don't like their organs normalizing anything mm-hmm. anything on the right you know, you saw this with Brett Stevens uh, 10 years ago. Bill Crystal had a column for The New York Times, very similar sort of uh, outcry back mm-hmm. then. But Twitter was in its infancy. But if, if Bill Crystal got a New York Times column today, I, I expect we'd probably get the same sort of pushback. Mm-hmm. Evil neocons like we can't just, you know, have their lies and their wars and blah, right. blah, blah. Oh, so, yeah. There, there, there is a backlash against never Trumpers because, of course, there are people who are saying that because Donald Trump is an organic development of the conservative movement, therefore all conservatives are tainted and we cannot allow you know, these conservatives to sneak into the tent because of this, because they are still all vile and evil. Now, I tweeted out that, you know, you know, if the Atlantic had had the bad judgment to hire me, I'm pretty sure that there would be a campaign to get me fired as well. And and in part, it, it is that that sort of dynamic. If you start from the default setting, that that all conservatives, you know, you know are, are you know are presumed to be guilty, racist, sexist, misogynist, insensitive. You're always going to be able to find something. Mm-hmm. And, you know, quite frankly, I think almost all conservatives have been through all of this. You know, there are websites that have, you know, picked out things that I have done or said in the past to say, you know, why why is MSNBC having him? Why is the Weekly Standard featuring him? And it is it is this kind of it. After a while, it does get to be a little bit exhausting because really, who cares whether or not The Atlantic publishes Kevin Williamson? You can choose to read or disagree, you know, or not read. You can choose to do agree or disagree with what he writes. In Charlie, it, it, it sounds to me like at that point, conservatism is the crime. Yeah. Um, you know, when you're talking about... The original sin. Right. When you're talking about cherry-picking certain things that people have done in the past. And look, you know, there are certain things... Kevin Williamson is a prolific writer. So when you write as much as he does, and he does tend to get quite creative with the pen, um, certainly not anybody's idea of a straight, straight-laced writer... Um, you know, there are going to be certain instances in a person's catalog, anybody's, I have to imagine, I'm sure my own at, at a certain point, even though I'm a pretty young man, that, you know, gosh, I wish in retrospect I wouldn't have written that. And of course, that's subjective. That's on a sliding scale. I do think that uh, the lead that Kevin wrote from from East St. Louis was an unfortunate editorial choice. And I, you know, would probably have been terribly ashamed of that. But do you, you know, 
at, at what points do we, you know, forgive people of their sins? Does this is this type of, this type of thing a disqualifying thing? I think most of the time, Charlie, it's that people don't take Kevin on the left. These people who are protesting, it's a matter of engaging the intellectual ideas. Does anybody actually take a Kevin Williamson or a conservative of any kind seriously from an intellectual level? Because if you're not willing to do that, then you're going to discount all of them. You know where he was really smart, though. Uh, I ran into someone, I didn't, as we've discussed in this podcast, Charlie, I did not go into CPAC, but I mm-hmm. went outside of CPAC to, to meet some people. And I ran into uh, someone who's uh, close to National Review. And we were talking about, for Lent, apparently, Kevin Williamson deleted his Twitter. Mm-hmm. But the person that I ran into said, I suspect it's it's probably gone for good. And that was, and I didn't really realize it at the time. Uh, he did that before he knew he was going to the Atlantic. And now all of his however many thousands of tweets and things cannot be taken out of context uh, unless you were smart enough to take screenshots and save them in some you know little rainy day fund. Of, <laughs> Which, of, of course, somebody has done. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Probably at Media Matters. You know, yeah. in, in, in fairness, I mean, Kevin, and I really like his stuff, and I've read his stuff for many years and you know, I've had interesting conversations with him. Um, but... He did push the the envelope. He had a, he had some tweets where where again from the point of view of the left, he crossed the line by suggesting that women who have abortions should be hanged. Um, mm-hmm. I read that as Kevin being Kevin, not to be taken quite that literally. Mm-hmm. But also in the world of opinion journalism, I mean, you know, it, you know, do our op- opinions disqual are some opinions disqualifying in the world of opinion journalism? And it is remarkable to me how many folks on the left who make their living from opinion journalism are prepared to answer that. Yes. I agree with the commonly held theory of all millennials to get Mo. And if I were to ever be considered for, for something go. in political office 20 years from now and Twitter is still flipped. around, mm-hmm. I hope it's not, and someone just found me tweeting all millennials to get Mo, you know, right. wh- what, 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 would be, what would people think about that? And so, you know, I think there is a little bit of that, but... You know. Delete, delete your account. <laughs> right, right. Delete it, delete it now. <laughs> All right. Speaking of people who have said um, impolitic things, uh, Laura Ingram is. Uh, by the way, Laura Ingram's taking the week off because it's Easter break, people. And it's, it's got, have you noticed all the folks saying, well, you know, in the wake of the boycott and the loss of advertisers, Laura Ingram suddenly is taking a week off? Yeah, she's got kids, and a lot of people take this week off. But this is this is another case where Laura Ingram um, uh, gets into a a fight. With uh, one of the one of the teenagers, uh, David Hogg, who has really become kind of a lightning rod, uh, mocks him for not getting into a better school. Uh, he turns around and uh, you know, sets off a, an advertiser boycott. Laura Ingram apologizes. David Hogg refuses to accept her apology, and now that this this boycott seems to be gathering momentum, is it inconsistent? Am I being inconsistent by saying? That first of all, you know, I'm I'm not a Laura Ingram fan. She shouldn't have said what she said. But there's something really disturbing about this now tit for tat advertiser boycott because you hurt my feelings uh, era of politics we're entering into. Yeah, that's a toughie. I mean, because it's it's to your point. I I don't know. P- part of this stuff, Charlie, is that when. We are, I think, as a matter of course, you know, you kind of, our society, I think, has a tendency to kind of bucket the Laura Ingram types together with the Charlie Sykes types and to get together with the Kevin Williamson types. And they all come part, all become part of a whole. And, you know, Laura Ingram kind of becomes the avatar of what's the new, you know, latest, awful, outrageous thing on the right today. 
Um, so, you know, having to, you know, like you said here, we're not a Lori Ingram fan and some of the things that she said are unfortunate. I don't think anybody out here is out to defend what she said. I think it's terribly unfortunate. But in terms of the default reaction being boycotting Lori Ingram and, you know, this is the can we just call this the hashtag Keurig smashing culture just as kind of like a, you know, just kind of <laughs> smashing Keurig ma- to own the uh, but they, to, they want their scalp. They, they, that's exactly what it right. was about. Well, that was that, that was that was that was uh, what Hannity was was this during the Seth Rich when he was pushing that uh, that garbage conspiracy? I theory? believe yeah. that's correct. Yeah, and I, I and that's I, correct. And I'm I'm anti boycotts. I understand why people do them. They're more mm-hmm. popular on the left. It is fun to see some on the right uh, who have pushed for boycotts, like Ben Shapiro. Oh, guys, are we all just coming around to this view that boycotts are just like, are just like really really bad? I mean, Ben Shapiro was like boycotting Ritz crackers because of Al Sharpton and had a hashtag <laughs> Sharpton's crackers. And, you know, it's there's a lot of hypocrisy on this issue, uh, especially on the right, because we're Mm -hmm. not we're not boycotters. But now, I mean, these in this sort of, you know, we had that great article in the NRA, sort of how the it of the NRA has kind of become. Why don't we just be as bad as our opponents? And on the right, they kind of like doing that, too. But if you look at the ads on Fox News, I mean, political advertising, both in magazines and in television, I mean, is 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 often kind of times niche because a lot mm-hmm. of brands don't want to touch it. Yeah, and, and I think the one point to kind of tie off what I was uh, in, a, in a terribly circuitous fashion trying to get to uh, is, is, and this is me getting on my high horse, and Jim knows that I talk about this stuff all the time, but the fact that David Hogg's admission into college is a national news story to begin with is so damn stupid. I mean, it just drives <laughs> me insane, and I understand... That when David Hogg is putting himself out here the way that he is, and Emma Gonzalez, one of his classmates, does things in a little bit of a different way, but our culture elevates these people into superstars, and they're 16 and 17 years old. Celebrity culture is deleterious to American culture. It is toxic. Yeah. And when we turn all of these little things about what's go- what's the latest in David Hogg's life, I mean, is In Touch going to do an interview with him at some point so we can get the skinny on what David Hogg's new celebrity life is going to be? Um, I mean, we just don't engage. Inevitable. The- it's inevitable. Now, I haven't looked at Fox's balance sheets, but I, I will give unsolicited free advice to liberals and conservatives out there who hate CNN, they hate MSNBC, or they hate Fox. Advertising does make a lot of money for these uh, cable channels, but you know what really makes money for the cable channels is the carriage fees. So if you really want to hurt the brand of your choice, since you can't pick and choose a la carte, which things, the best way to boycott them individually is to just cut your cable bill. Which I'm actually thinking of doing on my, on my own, um, a couple of things on on, on Friday's podcast. I uh, went on for a little rant about what something's going on here in my home state of Wisconsin, where I think Scott Walker shot himself in the foot on this uh, special election issue. Uh, just uh, two two things that I wanted to uh, highlight uh, here at the end of uh, of today's podcast. Number one, there's a state supreme court election in Wisconsin tomorrow that is not on enough people's radar screen. Um, this is a, 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 these these races in Wisconsin have boiled down to uh, right versus left, uh, Republicans versus Democrats. Huge amount of money put into this, and conservatives have been kind of well. They've been winning these elections. Uh, right now, there's a five to two conservative majority on the Wisconsin Supreme Court. And it's an open seat right now. It, there's a very real chance that uh, the left could win tomorrow. Uh, the the liberal candidate uh, Rebecca Dillette could win tomorrow. And I will say. 
that again is going to uh, send a, a real shiver of panic through Republicans here in Wisconsin. This is kind of one of those bellwether states. If the Republican, if, if the, and they, it's nonpartisan race, but if the liberal wins, it'll be just another indication that the left's the left uh, is more motivated and able to mobilize their voters than the right. And again, these are these are races that the conservative candidate under normal circumstances would probably get 55, 56 percent of the vote because that's the way things go. Even even when liberal Democrats were winning in Wisconsin, uh, voters tended to vote for conservative judges. The other other uh, story that I wanted to uh, highlight, speaking of the Wisconsin State Supreme Court, they have what I think is probably one of the most important academic freedom cases in the country up this month. Uh, this is the case of uh, Professor John McAdams, who was fired by Marquette University for something he wrote in his blog. And I have a piece uh, up on uh, the uh, uh, Weekly Standard website about the bizarre decision by big business groups to intervene on behalf of the speech police. You would normally think that the business community, first of all, wouldn't get involved or would side with free speech advocates. Instead, they're siding with Marquette, basically saying, you know, any private organization should be able to fire people for things they say, sort of ignoring the distinction between your average business and a college or a university that prides itself on having academic freedom. So I guess I'd highlight those, but the, the election in Wisconsin, um, I see very little attention to it, but it's going to be another one of those straws in the wind. So gentlemen, Thank you for joining me on uh, the first Daily Standard podcast of the month of April. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow, and we will do this all over again.